Welcome to Making Things Right, an invitation to restoring LGBTQ plus faith. I'm your host, Brian Nitzel. If you're tired of the debates and the division around faith and sexuality, if you're interested in more productive ways to engage and solution together and bridge divides between Christian and LGBTQ plus communities, then I think this is for you. So welcome to the table and welcome to Making Things Right. So hello, hello. Today's episode is about knowing LGBTQ plus stories, which I think have taken a backseat to more ideological, theological, complicated discussions and debates. Yet these stories deserve our attention because I think making things right is not about defending positions, but about defending people. If you ask any LGBTQ plus person in your life and they're honest, they'll probably tell you about the hurt and rejection that they've experienced in the church. And I think that's what our conversation should be about. And that's what we can help make right. So in my white paper, uh, I propose three steps to being a part of that solution. I'm a little bit of a process geek, I admit. I like roadmaps, step one, two, three. So if that works for you, if it doesn't, I'm sorry. But, uh, but step one is knowing. Just simply knowing our stories. Humanize this issue Allow yourself some understanding and empathy of things outside of your experience. And that's what today's episode is all about. So I've been heavily influenced by Andrew Marin. He's an author, a thought leader in this conversation. Uh, his first book was 2009, uh, Love is an Orientation. Amazing book, amazing title. Uh, and then he also uh, had a book in 2016, entitled Us Versus Us, which is really compelling to me. It was a research study that he put on. It was a multi-year project, a very uh, scientific study, kind of first of its kind, had like almost 2,000 uh, contributors and over all 50 states, followed scientific standards. And it really dug into the history of the LGBTQ community and religion. And it had lots of great findings, but there were three key findings that really blew me away. Number one, 86% 86% of the LGBTQ plus community was raised in the church. And that was versus 75% of the general U.S. population. Number two, 54% left after the age of 18. And that's versus 27% of the general U.S. population. So twice as many LGBTQ plus folks left at the age of 18. And the number one reason that they left negative personal experiences. Far and away, number one on the list, didn't even show up on the top 10 list of the general U.S. population. So out of that, I was really compelled to launch uh, my own study uh, with, a, with a group of people, a little smaller scope than, than the, the Big Marin study. Uh, and, and part of it was a survey. Uh, and it was a survey about LGBTQ plus experiences with faith and family, both growing up and uh, today, as an adult, uh, where the, is what the questions were about. Because I thought that if we could, you know, if what Marin said is true, that negative personal experiences are the main reason that the majority of LGBTQ plus folks left the church, if I could gather some of those negative experiences, maybe it could raise our awareness to what needs repair. We're early innings uh, in the study, but have some 
wonderful, uh, difficult early findings. And I was really taken aback by the level of unresolved hurts. So here's a few quotes from that study that especially impacted me that I want to share. I was terrified of being found out as homosexuality was grouped with prostitutes and drug addicts. As a secretly gay teenager, I was constantly hearing negative messages about gay men and women, the lifestyle, or the gay agenda. I was internalizing all of those messages. Another quote. At 17, I almost killed myself, and then I told my parents I was attracted to guys. For I thought that was God's plan for me to die, and maybe someone could be saved from my testimony, and that it would be better for me to die than to sin more. And the final quote. I left the church at the same time that I came out because it had been drilled into my mind. You are one or the other. You are gay or you are loved by God. Now I can relate to that last one. I always felt most of my life that it was gay or God and that God certainly couldn't handle that I was gay. Also in the survey though, I saw glimpses of healing as well. Here's a couple of quotes. My parents are allies and have been very kind to the people that I have dated. I know that many of my LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters have the opposite feeling about their parents, and I recognize my privilege. My mom has even taken in LGBTQ youth who have been kicked out of their homes. And a final simple quote. I was so afraid my mom wouldn't accept me. When I told her the truth, she was upset I didn't come out sooner to her and told me she didn't care about theology. She just cared about me. So you can uh, find out more of these stories uh, from our study in my white paper, but better yet, let's hear from them directly. Today I have three amazing LGBTQ plus individuals and now friends of mine, two new friends, one a longtime friend, and they're all joining remotely from the very cool state of California. They're all coincidentally from California. And my first guest today is Matt Nightingale. Thanks for joining today, Matt. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, wasn't that funny, like our connection and our missed connection? What Remind me of how that, because we had to sort of unpack that and figure out like, wait, didn't I meet you like five, six years ago? What was the, what was the final story there? Well, I remember... Talking with our mutual friend, Stacey Frenis, who yep. said, you've got to meet this guy, Brian. He sounds like he's doing similar things. Uh, and so I reached out to you. We started chatting and you said that we had talked five or six years prior. And I just <laughs> could not remember that. I, I mean, I, I had a vague memory, but I couldn't remember what it was around. And finally, I went back to Facebook Messenger and found the conversation. Oh, which always saves I, the threads, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So our conversation was, from six years ago. That's right. And then I remembered that we had, that I had actually seen you on a dating app here and had, <laughs> had sent like a screenshot of the dating app profile to you saying, Hey, is this you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Too funny. That's right. Cause I, in, in, in many, uh, I had 
many false starts with wanting to live in San Francisco. And so I right. probably use the the dating app to like try to meet people and connect with people mm-hmm. in the town and stuff. Yeah. Oh, so funny. But we never met back then. We always even nope. meant to like somewhere in that thread, like, yes, let's have coffee. And then it just, yeah, didn't work out. we talked about doing it and it just never happened. It's so funny. Well, it comes back around when it's supposed to, right? Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you for today. And, and, you know, you know, the spirit of this episode, right, is to just kind of give a little window into uh, stories, you know, LGBTQ plus stories, which I really think is kind of the, uh, is so important. And a lot Mm. of people don't have those folks and those experiences in their life, but they're open to humanizing this issue, if you will. And and so just, you know, let's just dive in. Why don't you, you know, take it where you like, but maybe... uh, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, uh, growing up uh, as LGBTQ or Christian or what have you, and we'll take it from there. Yeah. So I, I'm i going to be 50 years old in wow. a couple weeks, which is Congrats. kind of blowing my mind. But yeah, thank you. I made it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that means that I was kind of growing up in the 1970s and 1980s. Yep. Uh, I was in Northern Indiana in a fundamentalist. So Christian was I. Really? Okay, I'm not going to divert your story. I'm very sorry. I grew up in Michigan City, Indiana. No way. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Mishawaka, Indiana, which is close to <laughs> South Bend. Oh, funny. Okay, back to you. Okay. So yeah, um, I grew up in, in you know, I talk about it like a, a fundamentalist bubble, basically. It was, yeah. it was warm and loving and amazing. I had a mom and dad and a little brother and sister. I went to uh, church, you know, three times a week, basically. We were those people. Sure. Um, and then I went to a Christian school starting in second grade. And I did that whole life all the way up through college. So, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I lived about mm, maybe half a mile from my church and school. Mm-hmm. So my my whole life, you know, from like second grade through high school was in this very small little pool uh, with the same people, seeing the same people at school, the same people at church, the same people in my neighborhood. Um, And at the time, I loved that. It just felt safe and warm and good. And I was all in. I was a very deeply convinced, devout Christian young man. And I was a youth group leader and a worship leader. And I preached in my church. And I was just that super enthusiastic Jesus kid. And I also, when I was 10 years old, realized that I was different from everybody else. I had already known I was different, but I didn't have language for it. Mm -hmm. And I remember that day on the playground, somebody saying something about a homosexual and it, it just kind of clicked. I realized, oh, this is the word that describes why I'm different from everybody else. But in my life, in my little community and world, there just was no healthy model of an LGBTQ person. Sure. I, I didn't have access to anybody like that. And there was no good representation on TV or in the world, you know, that I was, that I was a part of. I'd never seen a healthy gay person, yeah. let alone a spiritual or Christian gay person. That yeah. just was not an option. And so, you know, at the tender age of 10 years old, I decided to just hide that like literally for the rest of my life. Like no one can ever know this. This mm-hmm. is something I just got to, you know, clamp down and ignore. And so I proceeded to do that basically for, for many, many, many years. Um, I mean, I, I tell people that I was like the perfect evangelical. I did exactly what the evangelical church school uh, told me to do mm-hmm. to the point that I dated girls. I went to a Christian college really close to my hometown. I ended up getting married to a woman 
Uh, I ended up going into full-time ministry. I ended up having four children with her and being married for 23 years. So talk about giving it the college try and like really doing what I was told to do. And sounds like some real authenticity in that as well, right? Yes. And thank you for saying that because I think a lot of times the the narrative is that that was all just this huge fake lie. And that's just not true. Um, A lot of that life was beautiful and profound and good. And the life that my former wife and I built together was something that I was really grateful for. I still am grateful for all these years later. So yes, it was, it was a good life in many ways. And also a life of hiding and a life of trying to be something that never, ever felt normal or natural. Right. Yeah. That was a kind of a two-sided story. Like, so I heard all the good stuff, like what, how did you sort of wrestle? What were your outlets conversationally or whatever for the schism in your sexuality? For me, it was truly for, for most of, of my early life, it was just hiding. It was just denial. It was just shove it down and act like it's not there. Um, and even as I grew up and began to kind of understand a little bit more about myself and about human sexuality, uh, I then began to think that this was something that was broken and sick inside of me that needed to be healed. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, in 2002, um, after the birth of our third and fourth children, we had twins. So this was 2002. uh, I had had enough of this kind of feeling like I was two different people all the time. Um, And I was starting to read, this is, you know, the early 2000s, and there was kind of some ex-gay stuff in the zeitgeist. There were people saying that they used to be gay and weren't anymore. This was even on national news sometimes. And I remember seeing those things. I knew it well. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if this is true, I want that. Sign me up, right? Yes. If someone can be healed of this by, by coming out and, and seeking healing, then I want it. And so again, doing what the church kind of told me to do. I followed the directions and I Mm -hmm. came out for the first time to my wife, to some trusted church friends and leaders. And that that was the first time it wasn't a secret, right? Yes. For the most part, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Eight years into my marriage, uh, I was 30 years old. And what was the response from your wife? If you don't mind mm, me asking. Yeah, no, it it was um, shock and sadness and uh but also uh like a commitment to be in this with me as we together sought healing and this is something that sometimes people don't understand like that whole world of ex-gay conversion therapy stuff um it is i believe with all my heart like false it's a it's a damaging thing and yet at the time in those moments it felt like love and acceptance and healing. It felt like something that I was fighting uh, with my band of brothers and with my wife by my side, and we're going to do this. We're, we're yes. on God's side and we're seeking healing. And so, you know, I, I have complicated and uh, interesting feelings about those years because I, I think ultimately they are damaging and harmful and they don't work. Uh, and also it was the first time in my life that I was being honest and and yeah. sharing the truth about my life and finding some acceptance and some some offers of help at least you know and that was pretty profound at the time mhm no oh, absolutely okay so there was this um when did it when did it start to i don't know the words when did it start 
moving in the direction of maybe this, maybe I can't stay on this path anymore. Mm. What was the catalyst there? Tell us about that sort of transition, if you will. Yeah. Well, for someone like me who who is so deeply invested in a particular way of life, um, the stakes yeah. are really high. Yep. You know, I, I had a, a wife of 23 years and four children and, and a 20 year career as an evangelical worship pastor in a denomination yeah. that wow. does yeah. not does not affirm queer people, doesn't affirm yeah. LGBTQ identities and relationships. And so I had a lot of reasons to stay in the closet and to keep doing what I was doing. Um, But over time, I think the simplest way to put it is that it just became heavier and heavier. Every day I I felt like I was putting on a costume to go to work, to walk around in the world. I felt like I had kind of this, this, I don't know, this identity, this false identity that I had to put on. Uh, in order to be accepted in this world in which mm-hmm. I was living and working and 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 being. Um, and over time, as my own understanding of human sexuality changed, as my own theology um, became more inclusive, as I began to understand that God does create queer people, God does bless and affirm same-sex relationships, then that weight became heavier and heavier and heavier. Sure. Um, and over time, I, I I kind of fell into a lot of anxiety and depression, um, and it just got heavier and heavier. That's really the only way I know to describe it. And I started to worry, like, can I do this? Can I yeah, keep yeah, doing yeah. this? And I wondered, and I worried. You could almost do it better before you knew what you were learning. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. As long as I thought this was Because at least you have the evil. satisfaction that you're doing the right thing. Exactly. But once I began to kind of affirm this, like this could be a good thing. Maybe God actually created, loves, blesses uh, queer people. It it got harder and harder. Um, I remember when marriage equality happened in 2015, I just sat at my desk and wept by myself because I thought not only can I never experience that for myself, Mm -hmm. but in this context, in this non-affirming church and denomination, I can't even celebrate with my gay friends. You know, I, I felt doubly closeted. And, and the more I went through that life, the heavier and heavier it got, I started to worry about my own health. And then I started to worry about my children and my wife. And I thought, I, I, I don't know if I ever really seriously contemplated killing myself, but I know that I was not healthy. I know that I was getting more and more unhealthy. And I worried about there, that trajectory. Sure. I worried yeah. about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Totally. How did you, um, before you pivot to like sort of the, the, the transition and kind of where you're at today, how, it's something, it's just something I thought of when you talked about you coming to a new realization around sexuality and theology and such, was that like, was that a head thing? Was that a heart thing between you and God? Was it both? Like, when did that, was it just maturity? Like, how were you able to because I know obviously your relationship with God and your faith was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And it was the same, it's the same reason why I didn't really come out, quote unquote, until I was almost 40 years old, similar. Yeah. But what what was it? Was it more of an internal heart, you and God thing? Was it a head book study thing? Like how did you pivot there? Mm. For me, it was it was both. And I, I don't know about you, but like I I hear about this a lot and I experienced it myself. There's kind of a hamster wheel, you know. I remember like I would read this book or this blog post or this uh, whatever. 
and go, oh, okay. So I'm I'm convincing myself intellectually, theologically. Oh yes, okay. These verses don't necessarily condemn loving same-sex relationships. All right, cool. But then I would turn around and I would read the opposing argument, you know, and I would kind of feel that sinking feeling of like, oh gosh, maybe I was wrong. I don't know. And I I studied and studied and studied and studied. And I kind of kept going back and forth. It felt like ping pong, you know, and that yeah. was that was difficult. Um, but along with that, I started to get to know other LGBTQ folks. And that was ultimately what, what helped me kind of cross that line was seeing the fruit of the spirit in gay Christian people <laughs> and seeing their loving generous responses to yep. their critics, seeing the way that they live these loving, self-sacrificial lives, even in same-sex partnerships, which was out of my paradigm, right? right? I had been told that those things were broken and evil and not real love. But what I started to see was real love, like lived out right in front of me. And I mm-hmm. could not deny the evidence of the spirits working in these beautiful people. And so, yes, it was a lot of like intellectual work. And yes, I read lots of books and, and studied. And also the thing that really ultimately helped was experiencing relationships with people, seeing the fruit of the spirit in their lives um, and just not being able to deny anymore that God was so clearly present. Yep. No, that's really good. And you know, what makes me, what's, a little unique about your story, I bet, compared to some of our other LGBTQ plus uh, brothers and sisters, is that we didn't necessarily have an overtly uh, hurtful, wounding experience mm. within the yeah. church, and that was my story as well. Like the, the, the. I mean, this isn't about my story, but I'm relating to yours. Like the yeah. church was actually a safe haven for me compared to like the schoolyard. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I felt safe there, and I felt uh, more accepted, less judged. Ironically. So the wounding that I experienced, I guess, from the church, it was more subversive, if you will, because mm-hmm. there was no place for me to talk about this and to to explore this and to be authentic. It was too risky, um, yeah. but it wasn't like a, a, a overt kind of hurt and a rejection experience that many other LGBTQ plus folks have experienced. And it sounds like that was kind of the same for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are moments that I can kind of remember from youth group or whatever, where a youth pastor would say something kind of stupid and and thoughtless, you know, yeah. use a, a slur or, or I don't know, do some kind of a gay impersonation, you know, just being funny. This was the 1980s, you know, yeah, and people yeah, yeah. weren't as aware as they, they, and they just weren't now. thinking what they were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I remember like ignorant moments like that. Yeah. Um, but you're right. For me, the church was always a safe haven. It was always like the yeah. place where I connected with God. It was the place where I I had grown up and I, I don't know, I just had this deep love for this life of faith and church and family. Um, yeah. So I, I don't have those, you know, I was never cast out of a church. I do have like the experience of when I came to the moment of realizing that I was going to have to make a change and yeah. I was going to have to come out and live authentically. I had to, there was kind of a reckoning because the the church that I was a part of for all yes. those years that I loved so deeply and had so many deep relationships with, I was not going to be able to stay in that Mm. denomination. I was going to have to resign and even resign my ministry credentials and leave my local church. And that was very painful. Um, And and that was one of the things that obviously that kind of kept me in the closet for so long. Mm. Um, So, so that wounding is a real thing and it's, it's more recent. It's not like a, 
an old story. It's like five, six years ago now. I had to leave my church home um, and and walk away and try to create a new life, which was did really that, difficult. Did that experience, and don't let me put words in your mouth, uh, make you realize that maybe some of that love, and this, I know this sounds rhetorical, but uh, it reminds me of something a buddy told me that I accepted the love of the church under terms and conditions. Mm. And later I realized, wow, mm. there was a lot of terms and conditions to that. Did it, on the, uh, did that, did that, do you, did you experience that or did you just feel like they just weren't at a place where they could accept you and it just was what it was? Um, I think it's both, you know, I think because I was so immersed in like church leadership and behind the scenes and the theology conversation. Yeah. It was just like a part of my life. And I kind of knew that this church, this denomination was not in a place where an openly gay person could continue to serve. So I just kind of knew that if I was going to make this decision, if I was going to live in this way, I was, you know, necessarily going to have to leave this place. Um, And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think I would have necessarily described it in that way of like being loved as long as I did these things. Um, I bet it was, I bet it was hard. I mean, I bet some of those people were really torn Mm. about you having to leave, weren't they? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I will say like, in a sense there, there, there is that feeling because when I came out in 2002 and dove into my reparative conversion therapy stuff, I was being very open with my church, with my denomination, like right, all right. the way up the chain. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so in a way there was that sense of like, and, and I never had to leave my job. I never had to undergo any kind of discipline because they were all so delighted that I had come out on my own accord and asked for help and sought healing, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, but then there was always that that understanding always between all of us that I could stay in ministry. I could keep doing this life, et cetera, et cetera. As long as, as long as I yeah. was not acting on this, whatever this yeah. orientation, you know, they so, would have said this temptation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's just, it's just thoughtful when that friend said to me about these terms and conditions that made me even muse on my own sort of yeah. experience within the church. So tell me about today or tell me about the transition with your family and kind of where things where things went from five or when you had that weeping moment when mm-hmm. uh, marriage equality <laughs> became national. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge, long and involved story, but I, over time, little by little, and also I, I, I tell people that, you know, my former wife had a front row seat to this whole thing. We were yep. communicating openly and honestly for, for 15 years. Uh, as, as we walked through this process. Um, but yes, I did come to a place of, of realizing that I, I didn't think I was going to be able to do this for the rest of my life. And I needed to find a way to live in an authentic, healthy way. And that was going to mean having to leave my ministry and leaving my marriage. And that is one of the things that is sad and difficult. Even now I, I look back and it's not like I have this, you know, rags to rainbows kind of story, you know, like the, it's, yep. it's a real story. It's a human story and it's complicated. And and I, I feel um, a lot of joy and freedom on this side of the closet door. I also feel some sadness and some loss. Obviously this, totally. this was a really huge, important thing to me, this whole, this whole life that I had built before. Um, but I'm really grateful for the understanding for the, uh, the, 
kindness that my former wife has has shown throughout this whole process. She has been as supportive as as someone in this situation could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And then I'm so thankful for my children as well. I have four adult children now, ranging age from 20 to 26, and they have been incredible. Like the, I just have such a um, uh, gratitude for like <laughs> the way that these kids, you know, even in the shock of finding out that their uh, their parent was gay and and that their parents' marriage was changing and ending, mm-hmm. each one of them found a way to tell me that they supported me, that they loved me, that they understood. I remember one of my uh, twins saying, kind of makes sense that a gay man shouldn't be married to a straight woman. You know, there was just this kind of like, uh, yeah, obviously sense about them. Which, but it's not that simple, but yes, no, you're right. It yes, should be. I, yeah. I, and I appreciate that about this younger generation. You know, they've, been, yeah. they've grown up in, in very diverse uh, situations. They have trans and gay friends and it's like, okay, this is, this is helpful. Um, and then through many crazy ups and downs, I mean, it, it kind of launched me into some real financial and job insecurity, as you can imagine. Um, but thank God I have gotten to the place where I am now co-pastor of a really wonderful, uh, I, I call it an evangelical-ish church. It's uh, in Marin County, California. It's called The Quest. And I am amazingly the openly gay co-pastor of this church. Yeah. Uh, and I am still... And are they are they kind of an out church or kind of a church sort of on the way, if you will? Um, meaning, meaning affirming church, very yes. all in on LGBTQ, yes. or they're sort of on the way there. Okay. okay. No, they're they're all in, and and that's been such a gift to me. You know, I yeah. I first joined the staff as the worship leader, and then the pastor ended up leaving, and and here I am co-pastoring now with, by the way, my best friend of twenty years, hmm. who, which is another like amazing story to me of how God brings all these pieces together and and does beautiful things, even out of the messes of our lives, you know? So yeah, I'm so grateful to be where I am today. Um, My, my faith is absolutely central to my identity. Mm -hmm. Um, This life of ministry is something that I've always wanted. That didn't change. You know, we we have this narrative. We're often told you you can't have both. And I'm so glad that you found a way to keep that in the mix and reclaim that in your new mm -hmm. chapter. Cause a lot of folks just, kind of walk away from yeah. their 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 involvement with church or ministry mm-hmm. or even their relationship with God. Yeah. And I understand that. Yep. And there there were times over the last five or six years that that I've kind of been tempted to do that. And I've I've even in some ways kind of like toyed with that and maybe kind of tried to move in a different direction. But it just it never felt right. It never felt authentic. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to give up so much and work so hard to be able to live authentically as a gay man, I'm I'm not going to let go of something that is equally a part of my identity, which is my yep. Christian faith. I am I, I say something like I'm I'm all gay, all Christian, all the time. Those two things are such <laughs> uh, an important part of my identity. I can't be I, I can't let go of one of those two things. They're both yep. central. That's great, and a big, beautiful, long story that that brought you to where you are. So cool. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Matt, for giving us just a little window into your story and your experience today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Take care. What I love about Matt's story, I like a lot of things about Matt's story, but what I love about his story is, I think I mentioned it, yeah, I mentioned at the end of the authenticity of 
his time in the church. Even though it wasn't fully himself, there was joy there, but he eventually knew, he said it at the end, that, that even the good works that he started to do felt fake because he started realizing that he couldn't bring all of himself to the table. And then how there's the full circle at the end where he's back doing his heart in the church, pastoring, but he's got all of himself front and center. And it's, and it's good. So that's good story. So glad Matt joined. My next guest is also from California and is a, another new friend of mine that met me through uh, a survey uh, that we were doing. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, I want to introduce you to Jana. Thanks for joining, Jana. Yeah, of course. Um, not originally from California. I'm a transplant, then you've got five years. But oh, um, I. I know that. <laughs> Oh, cool. I'm originally from the East Coast, um, but I grew up in former Yugoslavia and Bosnia and Croatia. Uh, my parents were missionaries. I remember that part of your story, but I didn't remember. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we lived over there from around like 92 um, when I was about six years old until I moved back for college. And yes. Uh, 20, uh, 2005. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do remember that part of your story before too, which will probably hear a little bit about today. <laughs> yeah. And you're in San Diego now, right? Currently in San Diego. Yeah. The land of perfect weather. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I've always been a little more of a San Francisco boy as far as my love for California, but close second is San Diego. I just love it down there. And La Jolla. Yeah, La Jolla. Yeah. Uh, is that what you said? Yes. La Jolla. Yes. Yeah, I haven't um, actually been up to San Francisco yet. I've only been kind of as far as LA, but uh, no, I mostly stick around the south south of California. Yeah, that's great. So our connection. So we became fast friends, but we only just met a handful of months ago when you randomly found my survey that you filled out, and then you offered to interview afterwards, and we got to know each other. How did you? How did you find me or this again? So I went to a Jennifer Knapp show out That's here in right. San Diego a few years ago where, and it was a super small show. There were probably like 20 of us there. Yeah. Um, and afterwards I got to talking with some people and one of the people who I met at the show, we became Facebook friends and then she shared the link. Um, I think I got it through her. I, or I don't know if Jennifer Knapp posted it or not, but I'm yeah. friends with both of them on Facebook. So one of them posted it and I was like, yeah, like let's, let's talk about it because I really, I struggling with the question of like how to be gay and Christian has always been like a big part mm -hmm. of, you know, my life journey. So. I was just so impressed by many, including yourself that you would like, now granted the survey was anonymous. Um, but then at the end of the survey, I had given an invitation to say like, hey, this is a, a research study and we're going to do confidential interviews. If you're interested, reach out. And you reached out to me and you didn't know me from Adam. And I just was so impressed with your level of just willingness to trust me with your story. And we just had this amazing connection on the phone. It was great. Yeah, it was a, it was a really great conversation. And I mean, the thing is, is I'm I'm really open about my story with people who want to hear it, but I don't yeah. always just, you know, put it out there. Cause I think sometimes, you know, people don't want to hear all the details, yes, but yes. I don't think that there's, you know, been enough like public conversation around um, Christianity and the gay community. Yeah. no, oh, that's great. Well, the good news is this audience does want to hear it because that's why they're here. So thanks for joining today. So 
like, I'll let you take it. Like maybe just start with, um, you know, just growing up uh, as, you know, your faith experience and your sexuality and just kind of take it from there. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I was a missionary kid um, Mm -hmm. from the time I was about six years old. And um, I was really, really active in my family's ministry um, overseas. Uh, My parents were there as church planters and humanitarian aid workers. We worked in refugee camps, orphanages. Um, I helped teach English language classes. I, uh, you know, we would camp out like on the outside of like villages to do like day camps for the kids and stuff like that. And I was fairly fluent in the language. So I was a translator when we would have missions, missions teams come over from churches or colleges. And so I was really involved in all of that. Um, But through all of that, um, I hadn't thought a whole lot about like my sexuality because, you know, it wasn't, it was, it was never an option in my brain to be anything other than heterosexual. And I remember Mm -hmm. being like eight years old and, um, and telling my mom that like, I never wanted to get married and I, you know, in retrospect, I have a feeling that that probably came from. Um, the fact that I could never see myself being with a man for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when I was about 16, one of my good friends from, um, our, one of our home churches, um, the church, my dad grew up actually in Connecticut, um, came over for the summer to work with us, uh, you know, doing like missions work. And, um, while he was out there, he came out to me and he hadn't come out to many people before, but he had come out to our youth pastor in the States who'd had a very, you know, kind of pray the gay away kind of reaction, um, which was kind of the reaction everybody had. And at this point he was pretty angry and bitter and basically planned to go back home and um, mm-hmm. just, you know, drop a bomb on his ch- family in the church. And yep. I remember reacting so strongly to that and just, yes. you know, having that, having that, you know, um, reaction that I think a lot of, Christians who really are trying to do the right thing have, where it's kind of like, well, I love you, but I think that this is wrong. I think that you're, you know, making the wrong choice. And, you know, even if, you know, being, you know, even if you are born that way, then Mm -hmm. it's not, um, you don't have to choose to act on it type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and, but also during that summer, he and I bonded over a lot of things. We um, both were kind of struggling with some mental health stuff and some depression and mm-hmm. um, things like that. And uh, we got really, really close. And um, we stayed close for a while after that. And that was kind of my first real encounter with somebody close to me. Um, yeah. How old were you at the time then? About 16, I think. Okay. Um, and then the following year when I was 17, it was a really dark year just you know struggling with depression and things like that um i'm curious when you uh when he came out and started talking about that did that start um bubbling it up higher for you or was it still just not even an option it was it still wasn't really an option um i there was something pivotal that happened there but i can't put my my finger on what it was sure um but nothing in that area as far as like my own awareness happened until probably college um Mm -hmm. 
which, you know, so several years later, and even then nothing, there was nothing like in the forefront of like my consciousness until, you know, probably towards the end of college as I was graduating college. And I can't, I can't put my finger on the time when I, on a moment where like I recognized it um, or was even like open to it. I had a, another really good friend at the time who like, I think he, he knew more clearly than I did for a while. And like, and in this time, like I dated a couple of guys and, you know, stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. the two real relationships that I had with guys were really, I mean, they were really good. Like they were wonderful guys. Like I loved them, but you know, they were ready to, you know, make things more serious. And, you know, with the prospect of eventually getting married and I'm like, no, that's not going to work for me. You know? And, um, but yeah, like this friend of mine, he, um, he kind of we were just having conversations about like you know women being attractive you know things like that and uh somewhere in the course of our conversations I was like holy crap <laughs> like you know I'm that's that a lot of things make a lot more sense now yeah. um, but then that of course in itself caused a lot of issues and that was that took me to another really dark time um of you know coming to the point where I'd kind of like accepted that about myself, but I hadn't accepted that it was okay. And I wasn't coming out to people for a while. Um, I couldn't reconcile that with what I believed growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't imagine ever telling my family or the people who I had grown up with. Mm -hmm. Um, But at this point I was living in New York city and none of the people who I grew up with, were around me so eventually I was like coming out to you know my friends and co-workers this was after college as well I went I'd gone to a Christian college but due to some unrelated negative experiences there I didn't stay close with many people from the school so I was I had like you know new circles of friends that were all secular and so I was um getting more comfortable coming out in that way that was like an Um, easy sort of uh, like you you got a nice gift of an environment to come out where it wasn't so conflicting or 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 <laughs> challenging right yeah but it also certainly wasn't the healthiest environment yeah, yeah, either, yeah i suppose so. <laughs> um but like but it but that was a i think a really necessary time in my yeah, life yeah totally um, hmm. so and then i was and then i was in my first relationship with a woman and um you know that ended up ending as things often do especially you know first relationships Mm -hmm. and then not too long after that ended I kind of realized that I was gonna have to like this was like this was who I am and I have to tell my parents and somewhere in there I'd come to I had I wasn't involved in a church but I and I was really angry with God for many many reasons not just um for you know making me this way Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know making my life so difficult by Mm -hmm. you know making me gay or whatever Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was, I had a lot of anger in general, but I did spend some time like praying and I did do some research about, you know, like the passages in the Bible that, you know, supposedly yep. like, you know, quote unquote, like condemn homosexuality and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, at some point I was like, no, like I was created this way and that's okay. Like you know, um, I remember you telling me something in our interview before about you just knew that those passages didn't apply to you. 
Like yeah, you just well, had this knowing, right? Isn't that what you said? Or Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is I was always like my parents, you know, they taught me to, you know, think for myself and, um, and <laughs> when, like when I was growing up, like my dad was, was very into like apologetics and theology and, you yep. know, the science that backs up the Bible and things like that. Yeah. And I was taught to read things in context um and to learn about context and like the original language and things like that so when i did like a lot of like the research um and learn more about like the context of the passages and interpretation like just kind of realizing that it's not so that this wasn't so much what i'd been taught wasn't so much from the bible it was more of a tradition of teaching um Mm. and and that's that's where all of that you know um came from it was a yep. tradition of teaching rather than like what the bible was actually saying or meaning of that. i love that and i i probably could have another conversation with you about that sometime offline because I <laughs> yeah but i loved how you said that like it wasn't about the bible it was about traditional teaching and, and that you were taught as a kid to be a critical thinker and to dig in and to go there and you did that which is cool but yeah. how did it how did it go with coming out with your parents um well i was you know, ready for the worst case scenario. You yeah. know, you hear about, you know, kids being like disowned and stuff like that. Um, I was actually, I was, they live in Colorado now and I was out there visiting them um, for Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I had a plan to uh, go, like but one of my friends in Texas was like, I will fly you down here if things go really bad when you come out. Cause I was going to, I was there for two weeks. I was coming out one week <laughs> into it. Um but thankfully it did not come to that, but it also has been, you know, a struggle with, you know, with my family and, um, with my parents, they, uh, they, in spite of, you know, multiple attempts to have like, you know, open dialogue and not that they're not willing to have the open dialogue, but, um, but there's really not any movement or any room for movement, I guess, on either side, um, as far as, and it's the reaction that I, you know, had to, you know, my friend, you know, when he came out, which was like, we love you, but you know, this is wrong mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, um, that's been the reaction with my parents. And this was just trying to do math now. This was like eight or nine years ago now. Okay. Um, but God, I, was I thought that was like shorter than that. Time. So it has been a while. And there's, how is that? Has it evolved with them since, or is it just something you don't talk about or agree to disagree or what? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm married now. I got married last year and I've been with yes, my wife are. now. We've been, <laughs> we've been together, um, as a couple for about eight years now. And okay. I had come out to my parents just a few months before I'd met, I met my wife, um, which before I'm really glad you that met I, your wife. Yeah. I'm actually really grateful that I came out. Um, to my parents while I wasn't with anybody. Okay. So it like from either side, nobody was going to think that I just did it because I was yes. with this person. But you knew it was a personal decision. That's interesting. Cause I didn't come out to my parents until I had a relationship, but that's, yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Cause then it was more about you and your thought process, not just because you met someone that swooped you away or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing, like I said, I'd been in a relationship with a woman before that and it was, after that relationship ended that I realized that like, you know, well, that relationship didn't work out, but like any future relationship was going to be with a woman. And, (laughs) you know, at some point I was going to have to tell them. And then there was a, I have much younger siblings. So I'm the oldest of six and, um, three of my siblings are, are grown. And then my two youngest siblings are 
at home. And again, if this was like nine, eight or nine years ago, they would have been, you know, about like four and six, I think. Um, So they were really young. And I remember it was actually around the time um, of the election, I think for Obama's like second term. And it was like really late. And I was watching like a, a news piece with, Wanda Sykes and RuPaul (laughs) and um and they were talking about you know how things have like changed you know over the years for people of the queer community and um and like the importance of you know of stories actually you know they were talking about that and there was something that kind of clicked in my head where I was like I like it was so important to me that my siblings grow up in a family where we're like honest, you know, and we can be open. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when my siblings got older, I didn't want them to have something that they needed to hide, whether, you know, an issues with like substance or, you know, pregnancy or anything about their sexuality or like anything like that. I didn't want them to be afraid. Yeah. That they'd have to hide, that it could be safe. Even if you agreed to disagree or whatever, that's kind of secondary, right? How yeah. is it, how is this, how is your, where you're at with your sexuality and being married uh, with your siblings? So with the three who are older, they've actually been great. They've been, you know, uh, really supportive. Um, two of them were at my wedding last year. The other one would have been there except, you know, COVID. <laughs> yeah. He was, so he wasn't able to be, um, but they've been very supportive in um they're you know friends with my wife and um all that's been really good the other two are still living at home um and they're still younger and you know they're obviously aware of the of what's going on but um but I respect my parents you know authority in their house with their children um Mm -hmm. so I don't we don't really have like a lot of conversations about it you know Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of it's talked about as a matter of fact that I am married to Daisy my wife um, but it's not really discussed other than, um, my youngest sister, you know, spoke to me uh, a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, um, you know, basically doing exactly what I would have been doing at her age, speaking to somebody who was close to me, who was gay, kind of like, you know, showing parts of the Bible. And I told her, I was like, you know, like I, these are really good points. And, you know, there are a lot of things that I, you know, I would like to be able to, you know, have a conversation about, um, but we'll either have to do that, like when you're older or when, um, or, you know, with mom and dad's permission. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you seen, um, so is, have you seen any kind of evolution or change with your parents in that eight or nine years, or is it, and or do you see kind of hope for that? Or do you think it just kind of is what it is with them? I mean, I there's always going to be the hope, right? Um, but I've also, you know, I, I've reached, I think, a point of acceptance, you know, that this is how it is. And, you know, I, again, I do my best to, like, respect them. And especially in regard to my siblings who are still at home. Um, yep. And we're still in touch, you know, like they, um, they didn't come to my wedding last year as a, you know, point of principle. Hmm. Um, 
which, you know, was sad and hurtful. But, you know, the the people who were there, like my siblings and then our, and it was a very small wedding because again, COVID and then also we didn't want to go into debt over sure. it. But, um, but, you know, we have, we have a good, you know, kind of like chose, chosen family. And yep. um, so they're, they're there for, you know, a lot of the stuff that my parents can't be there for. Was that, um, I mean, it's probably a stupid question, but was that, how disappointing was that for them not to come or was it what you expected or both? Um, I mean, they had told me our engagement ended up being about two years long. Um, we initially pushed back our wedding because of the pandemic. Um, we were supposed to get married in the spring and so we got married late in the fall, but, um, my parents had already told me on, um, probably almost a year, maybe, I don't know exactly, but like a, a while before that they weren't going to be there. And then in fact, we even, um, which at, at the time, at the time when they told me that I was uh, devastated, I was heartbroken. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of like, oh, they'll change their mind. You'll see, you'll see. And I'm like, no, I already know. Like, no, I know these parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you um, know. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was really, it was really, really hard, but yeah. I had a while to wrap my head around it before like the actual before day. It so actually, it's not yeah. something that like, you know, overshadowed the moment or anything. Well, I guess I just want to relate there for a second because like, as you know, I'm getting married. It's actually uh, right? October 1st, less than 30 <gasps> days away. Congratulations. <sighs> we have so Mine much Mine was to October do. 31st. So. We have so much to do. I'm always nervous. And Dan's like, we're fine. We got this. Don't worry about it. So I'm just, I'm either in denial or I'm just going with his plan. But, but a lot of our family, most of our, much of our family is conservative. And if you really asked them what they think about gay marriage, they probably would have to say, I don't think it's cool. But yeah. they're showing up, you know, yeah. and we're really blessed by that. And so I'm sorry that that couldn't happen for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sorry too, but again, my other two siblings, or well, again, the one could be there, but you know, my my one brother, you know, walked me down the aisle, and awesome. my sister was in my wedding party, and then my brother, who's supposed to be there, was going to officiate, but again, mm. he, yeah, cool. So he you did have some good family there. representation. Yeah. So awesome. and you know, and that was all. That was you know one of the things that you know was saddest to me because even when I was little, even when I was saying that I wasn't going to. Um, you know, get married. Um, uh, <laughs> I still always imagine that if I did someday, you know, like my dad would officiate, you know, mm-hmm. and um and my my sister had actually just gotten married earlier, like in the month, and my dad was able to officiate her wedding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was that was hard. Yeah, I bet. What's your um what's your wife's name? Easy. Awesome. It's great. Yeah. Eight years. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Why did you, uh, uh, why, why her? She just good fit. Um, like you just kind of knew or just curious. No, I mean, actually when you say good fit, that's actually one of the things I think was on our, our second date. Um, we were walking across the, um, Manhattan bridge, I think in New York, I love walking across the bridges yes, in New York and, too. uh, and at one point we stopped and she just put her arms around me and I was like, wow, I fit really nicely to these arms, <laughs> you know, and it just, I felt, um, so safe and, um, 
and and comfortable, you know. And like I said, that was only our second date, and I think it was one date later that I asked her to be my girlfriend. So mm-hmm. um, that's awesome. When I when I met Dan, I just I kind of just knew. So that's cool. Yeah, it's not as un un abnormal as you think. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, certainly not. And our whole, you know, was it meet cute, whatever they call it? Yeah, yep. kind of weird because I met through like I met one of her friends at a birthday party and just kind of like on a whim allowed her friend to give Daisy my phone number which is not something I ever ever did right 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 and then (laughs) at the time Facebook was like the way it would like suggest friends for you Mm -hmm. it was it kind of almost looked very similar as like an actual friend request so I thought she was requesting me as a friend and I actually ended up requesting her as a friend and then Mm -hmm. I was like Oh no! <laughs> I was like, I didn't mean to make the first move here. It was a but that worked out thing. okay, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But all right. Yeah. Then we texted for about a month, and then we went on our first date. Eight years later, over eight years later, here we are. That's awesome. Hopefully, I'll be talking to you eight years from now, and I'll let you know how it's going. Oh, I would love that. Dan. Yeah. For <laughs> sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. We could like, we could go another hour, but here we are. So, but thank you for giving us a window into your story, Jana. It's been a privilege yeah, to get to know you. Of course. And, yeah. I just Thank love. you for giving me the opportunity to be here. I, I think, um, you know, as you know, you're, what this is all about. Like, I think stories are important. So that's, that's awesome. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jana. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. I feel so fortunate that I got to meet Jana just by circumstance of my crazy survey and Jennifer Knapp and just the how stars align sometimes. And I don't know, you heard it in her voice, right? She's just such a real authentic person. <laughs> if if you don't know, if you need this issue humanized, like listen to Jana. Like she's just such a such a sweet heart. So authentic, so innocent, so patient for folks uh, and her family, uh, and just so thrilled to. I didn't know if she'd mind if I asked about her wife. You know, I didn't want to get too personal, but like it just was such a nice picture into the the universal um, things that we all need and love of of loyal, trusted relationships. So it was awesome. I'm glad you got to hear some of Jana's story. So my third and final guest is no new friend to me, but a longtime friend. I've known this kid since he was nine years old. Well, most people expect you to be a guest to share about your story, what you're going to, but what some people don't know is that you're my official partner in crime with the Making Things Right project. Mm-hmm. You know? So Caleb is, um, gosh, how long, how long have I been talking about doing what we're doing right now? At least... It, we're at least mountain measuring in decades, right? You know, it's, it's been it's been more than more than several years where it's just been always in the background. Yeah, yeah. And unlike my other guests who are new friends, Caleb and I have a long history, which I'll talk about in a second. But he's always known that I've had this passion to talk about my my story and and how I love the church community and how I love the queer community and how I like to live in the tension in between and to help facilitate more productive conversations and all of that stuff. Um, But I just never, and I always had this nagging conviction, remember, to write and to do some of this work a little more formally and to 
create some resources for people to grab onto. Yet it just, I don't know how things in life are. And I was hanging out with Caleb in that plant-filled loft about a year ago right now. Yes. And and I watched you in action because as a vocation, Caleb is a brilliant creative marketing director. And I was watching him do this for this other project, this other person where he's launching something. And I just, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he could help me with my dream. And we just started talking about it. And Caleb's like, let's go. You just give me the word, buddy. And I remember I sent you a text in February yeah, yeah. where I just said, I'm ready. And <laughs> we've been off to the races ever since. And so even though I feel like the voice of making things right, the brains and the heart behind it is Mr. Caleb, who had just such a wonderful vision to, to create this podcast series and, and help me craft the white paper and to create different resources for people. So I really appreciate you. Our story started a whole long time ago. I met Caleb when he was nine years old and I was 23 or something. And, and both our sets of parents were friends and they were going to this little evangelical free church outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that's when I met Caleb Hudson. It was crazy. And then we've been, we've had some, uh, you know, we've been friends in different seasons ever since. It's funny. So I don't, wherever you want to start, Caleb, just, uh, we'd love to, I'd love, we'd love to know a little more uh, of your story. You know, you were, remember the moment when uh, you met me and I had that sort of same looking up at you and uh, looking up at this kind of wide eyed, like, wow, I really looked up to you. And that was actually, I think back about that. And that was like probably three years after I accepted Jesus into my heart, which happened at nine years or at six years old over mm-hmm. mac and cheese. <laughs> I had that, like, it, Everybody should accept Jesus into their heart over macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that was my conversion story. A six-year-old at the table eating mac and cheese. Uh, and I grew up so immersed inside of, of uh, everything that that meant inside the, the conservative Christian world. And uh, I would later go on to be homeschooled and, and had a, a growing understanding of my own sexuality that became apparent to me by uh, for sure as, uh, by the time I was 13 years old and then I had mm-hmm. a crystal clear understanding that I was gay, even you know at a, such a young age. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm inside of um, I'm inside of a of a culture in a church that's like talking about it, and uh, they're talking about homosexuality uh, as if. Anyone who is possibly gay is outside of those walls because gay is other. And so I got to hear very unfiltered comments from people that were talking about gay people like they weren't in the room, even though I'm sitting there with understanding that they're talking about me mm-hmm. and absorbing all these words, observing all the the real thoughts about the way it's viewed to be to be gay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, and as an early teen, that was incredibly impactful for me. I would, you know, by the time I'm 15 years old, get to the place where I just was desperate for it to go away. And I would pray all the time relentlessly and beg God to take it from me. And I was doing everything right. I was going to every Sunday school. I was a part of my church. I was in the youth group. I was volunteering as a leader for this kids program. And I was at church, 
you know, four days a week. And Mm -hmm. everyone I knew was connected to that system in some level. And I knew that it wasn't, um, it wasn't right. I knew that that's not what it was supposed to be. And, uh, I was really, really concerned that I was going to forever be in hell. And that, that was, I, if I couldn't figure it out, the consequences were for me were enormous. Like Mm -hmm. I was looking at an eternity of, uh, torture. I mean, I was just looking at like, it couldn't have been any more grave. And I remember feeling like, um, overhearing conversations with the youth group leader around, uh, someone in his world who he had found out was gay and the disgust that he was talking about, uh, just, just the pure disgust. And by the time I'm, you know, 16 and listening to the, what people think about, uh, you know, gay people and, certainly almost vilified people that a culture that they called the lifestyle that was out to somehow take something from the conservative Christian world. And there was a real fear about that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Around this time, Ellen comes out on her sitcom and Hmm. my mom made a huge deal of like boycotting Disney because Disney owned ABC. And we went to like group gatherings where like, a lot of concerned moms got together to figure out how to best boycott. It was a real concern that the, the gay lifestyle was being advanced and that this was being portrayed as normal. And it was really urgent that they keep, the church had to come together because this could not be viewed as normal. It wasn't normal. It was not right. And we needed to take an active role in ensuring that people did not see being gay as normal. Hmm. And uh, I remember shortly thereafter, on a Wednesday night being at church when all the lights were off in the sanctuary. Uh, I was, you know, the last one there probably waiting for a ride. The church had a large cross that was hung over the sanctuary and it was lit up by the moonlight. And I was so um, disgusted with myself and I hated it so bad. I remember crying and uh, just endless crying, like real big tears, like not understanding why I'd been begging about this, praying for it and why it still was there. Like why I wasn't getting, it wasn't going away. Why it was only getting worse for me. Why I was just like still struggling. It was this, if it was this bad and I wanted to get rid of it this much, like why was it, why was it so silent? Why was God so silent? And yep. I've never felt so alone in my whole life. You know, Two years after that, I would meet my first, the first person I'd ever met who also struggled like I did. Anytime it was referred to in any context, it was only seen as a struggle. A struggle. Yeah. It was struggle was the only word conveyed to what I, you know, had sort of like hell that I lived in. And it was a hell. It was a hell. It was because it was like this awful thing that I hated about myself and yet it would, wouldn't leave me alone. And I felt that I had done something wrong or that something had been done you know, around me or to me. There was no fault of God's. God doesn't make people this way. It happened to me. I was choosing it. I didn't know how I was choosing it. I kept trying to not choose it, but I couldn't shake it. And I was tormented by the, you know, the, the voices around me that were always insisting that it was just something that apparently seemed to be so easy that it could just, People should turn off, come to Jesus, be saved, and not have it because to not have this in your life was to be Christian. And so if I had it, like something was wrong. And I was like, this is such a 
Like it was, it was a constant inner turmoil place. And I remember in the senior year of high school, I would come to meet through um, a youth program, another senior in high school who had the same thing that I did. And we both had the same struggle. And for the, you know, obviously it was a secret just for us. And we were like, now, like at least inside, and then someone else had this struggle. We would pray together all the time. How did you find out? How did you even find out that it was a Yeah, like there was um, a moment where, you know, like we had, we had really become close. We'd become like best friends. And um, so there, there was like a moment between us that that's how we found out. And um, we prayed together. That, mm-hmm. that first night that we kind of like figured that out about each other and wait, you too, and me too. And like, oh my gosh. And uh, we cried together. We prayed together. We tried to hold each other accountable. And uh, by, you know, we both went into conservative Christian colleges where we, the stakes were so high that if we were to be found out, there were major, major consequences. And I'll never forget this, the phone call I got from him when um, he'd been found out and his school was threatening to, um, they were gonna out him to his dad, who would have, would, would have been an awful scenario for him. It was well, like, he couldn't imagine it. He was crying, he was hysterical on the phone. They, they said they were gonna out him to his dad or they would expel him if he didn't go to a camp. They sent him to a camp for a week it's like, they're sending me away. They're sending me away. I still get emotional thinking about his voice in that call. And um, they're sending me away. And he went to a camp so that he wouldn't have to, like, they wouldn't get outed. And he came back recommitted to dating girls and something he, you know, re-upped on his uh, renewed energy to make sure that he was going to be straight. And we were together determined to be straight. And I did that. I ultimately at college met someone and would go on to marry her. And um, a few years into um, that marriage, I told her about my struggle. She was the first person who I told of that I had the struggle in my life. And she received me with love. That was the first time I ever felt love because I grew up inside a culture that love was um, predicated by me giving the right answers. And that if I showed up in the way that was acceptable, I would be loved, but I was loved only to the version of me that, um, was allowed. Yes. And I knew a hundred percent how people felt. There was no mistaking how people felt about me being gay or anyone being gay. I knew that like the only way that I was loved is to make sure that they didn't know that if they knew that, that everyone in my life, whether that be the, you know, the high, the high school friends that were calling me faggot or making fun of the way I talked mm-hmm. um, or the parents around me or the church leaders that were like all warm and loving and gushy on me. All of that was just because I gave them the version of me that was acceptable and that was tolerable and that they could consume. Yeah. And that anytime they said they loved me, I knew deep down in my heart, you don't love me. If you knew me, you'd be gone in two seconds. You don't love me. You're just, you're just saying that because you don't know me. And the only way I can make sure that you keep loving me is to ensure that you don't know me. And here I was, and I was like finally pushing those boundaries and saying that to like, uh, to my wife at the time that I had this struggle about being attracted to men and her response was, I love you. And that was the first time that I ever felt true and fully unfiltered love because I was fully known and fully loved in that moment. It changed my life forever. 
and we didn't um, we didn't break up at that time. We started to sort things out, and shortly thereafter, um, we sat down with another couple. Um, they were friends of ours from freshman year of college. You know, we'd now known them for five or six years because at this point now we're all post post college. We're married, and uh, I will never forget this. The guy who was, you know, the link between us, um, he and I were very, very, very close friends. And so I knew all of his world really, really well. And he said, you know, baby John. And I knew this was another one of his friends from Iowa. Um, I knew he'd really been struggling with some major depression. I knew he was struggling with some substance issues. Lately, he'd been looking really progressively more unhealthy every time I saw him. Like you could just see in like all these changes that were happening and uh, so my says to me, like, at, over dinner table, we're just kind of catching up. And um, he says, baby John's, he's gay. You're not going to believe this. And, you know, obviously, uh, on our side of the table, between my then wife and I, she knew yeah. that. That was for, that was something that, you know, that was a me thing. But, of course, you know, they didn't know that. And yeah, so we're yeah, just yeah. sort of silently stunned saying this. And we listened to the way that he talked about it. And, you know, these were like our close Christian friends who were talking about this and just saying like, you know, his, his wife just went off about how, um, you know, she, she's like, he's been, how could it possibly be? She, he's been a Christian this whole time. I had no idea here this time. Like I thought like he was saved and he really wasn't. And I've been trying to like, and now we have to figure out how to witness to him. We don't even know how to do that. Like you think you know someone. And she was like, I just make sure that he will, he will never be around my kids. I absolutely will never let him in the same room with them again. And then she said like four times that like he would never see the kids. And it was like he had a disease. He was like a cancer to, and, or something awful. And she needed to make sure that no one in her world caught what he had as if it was contagious. And um, I start crying. And then I just tell them at the table oh my God. that uh, that's me. You're talking about me. That's my story. And uh, they looked so stunned. And then <laughs> yeah, she tried to like say, she tried to recover and say like, right. you know, it was never about you and you're not like that. And like, I, I didn't know, I had no idea. They were stunned and speechless. You know, my former wife started crying and um, you know, they would then, they did um, make an apology later. We left the, the dinner and they would later apologize. And um, they were no longer friends with me after that. You know, like they uh, explained, you know, that they're, you know, they're sorry. That like, you know, if they no longer continued that friendship. It was shortly thereafter that I started doing my own version of conversion therapy, where I would then work. I went to a special version of it that was in Texas and it was for married people. And it was in my continued attempt to try to, uh, to fix whatever problem I had hmm. at the time. I thought of it as SSA or same sex attraction. And, uh, I was trying to distance myself from anything called gay, um, because I was trying to reclaim my original birthright in that of a straight man, which apparently I was born to be. 
and that somewhere along the line, a hose got kinked and that I, I just needed to figure out where the kink in that was in the hose and solve the problem. And then yep. I would, it would flow again. And like, I would be the straight man that I was always was that God made me to be, that I was destined to be, that I could be. There were these success stories held up of men that figured it out and had three kids and were happily married. And so my wife and I joined this marriage group and we, for years, went to these conferences, did these workbooks, had these small groups, went in these sessions, and I would do Bible verses and try to unwind my sexual sin, try to figure out what, where it originated. Was it with my mom? Was it with my dad? How did it happen? How do I become more like a man? How did I like do this? And I would meet broken people that were just like torturing themselves throughout this whole experience that they were just trying so hard to be what they were taught they had to be and that they had no alternative to be and heard the most heartbreaking stories in that, in that group. After five years of being, you know, out inside of my, inside of my marriage at the time, she really wanted to have kids. And we had a house by the lake and a fenced in yard and a dog and two cars. And it just felt like the next logical step, but um, I couldn't go to that place. And that's the moment of authenticity for me when I decided I'm exhausted. I don't know. I don't know if God's cool with it. I don't know if I'm going to go to hell. All I know is I've tried my whole life to change this and to be what everyone, including God, wants for me. I can't do it anymore. Like, I can't do it. And I don't need to, like, and I had to make a big point of this at the time that I wasn't even making the change because I wanted to um, – live the lifestyle. And I kept saying that because I, I wanted to distance that. I did, wasn't, didn't want the title gay. I didn't like that title because I still had so much baggage from it. Mm-hmm. And um, all I knew is that for the first thing I had to do was just say, this is, this is in my life. This just is. It's always been there. And I, I can no longer like try to change it or commentate on it or love it or hate it or accept it or whatever. It just is. It seems to be a fixed thing in my life. And so I need, that needs to be my starting point. I got, I came on, got divorced. And like, then I started, you know, taking years that would be unwinding all the things to realize that this, I, I didn't mess something up. My story wasn't broken. I, I, I didn't like ultimately do something wrong. I'm not a victim of my sexuality. I had to re-understand what it was like to actually love people without an agenda, without conditions, and learn how to give that love and receive that love and unwind all of the voices that had sort of echoed in my past from the experiences. And it leaves me remembering, like, ultimately, I think some, so many times people were around me talking about gays because uh, they were outside the room. Mm-hmm. And it's like such a good reminder because there are people who are around you right now in your life who have some expression of this and you just don't know. And you may never know because they will never tell you. You don't actually know who you're talking to when you're talking to mm-hmm. anyone. And, you know, People would tell me about, um, in college, they would tell me about times where like we had to do a witnessing project. And so they would send people out to people that they needed to be witnessed to. And there was a whole group that went to meet um, gay people and try to witness for them. And they were telling, they came back and did a whole report to the class on what it was like. And to meet 
to meet gay people and, you know, try to like win them for Jesus. And I think that was the common misconception of the gay people aren't outside the church. They're not outside the room. They're not outside the walls. They're just inside and the stakes are too high for them to speak up. They were too high for me to speak up. The consequences for being brave or, or, you know, raising your hand and saying me too are, are way too high for, for many to make that decision. Hmm. So I'm fortunate now that like, I'm in a much better place and I'm surrounded by people who love me and all aspects of me. And I get to be really vulnerable and authentic and transparent with people that accept me in all forms and facets of my life. Mm -hmm. And I've carved that out far away from the church in a very safe distance that is like outside of all of the, this, the, this sticky expectations and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, all of the terms and conditions of love. Uh, and so I've sort of found a safe refuge, uh, far, far away from that now. Mm -hmm. You have tastes of that though, through people, but not through any church experiences right now. Correct. Or just, that's just not a part of your (laughs) life. That's right. Community. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually tried a few churches. Um, when I got out, when I got out of church culture and I sort of was in my place where I was recovering, like how much of it, you know, I was going to keep into my life. And I attempted to go to a few churches that were local to me in California. And I, I couldn't do it. I actually had, um, I guess I still have a bit of, uh, hurt and anger and the, all of it wrapped up inside that, you know, institution and the, the culture of it. So I did make some attempts and it reminded me of like, what a scary, unsafe place it is to be inside those walls. And like, uh, yeah. (laughs) I, I'm resisting to ask you a big question on the back end of your story, but I just can't help myself. So you know what this project is about, you know? I, I can't even believe you've been my friend for so many years and there's so many of your details I didn't know, you know. Why in the name of heaven did you sign up for this? <laughs> for for which our primary audience is conservative to moderate Christians who are, who are maybe just sort of interested in thinking differently. They're not ready to like march in a parade or anything yet, you know, like uh-huh. there, there are those folks that you were just talking about, but they're maybe ready to think a little bit differently. Why did you sign up for this, Caleb? I think it was the biggest uh, invitation because of course, I love you so much. When you asked me to do this, I just thought like, this is you, of course, this is your dream. I want to do anything possible to make it your dream. And so I just signed up um, because it was your dream. And I had no idea how through the whole project, it would just make me reconfront things that I think I've needed to like heal and move on from. And just by being a part of this for the last several months, I've had to confront spaces where I just get really angry that I feel like we don't need to like make a big compelling case to ask people to just try to be kind humans. Like yeah. that shouldn't, we shouldn't have to like roll out a red carpet. And it, and then I have to like realize where does that come from in me? Like, where do I get that? Oh, that's still unresolved space where I, I have rough edges in me where I think the first thing you have to do is to get to a loving community, get a far away from people that have expectations of you and they yes. predicate their love based on principles, like get away from it. Mm-hmm. And then I think that that's not really the case. There are many people that I think feel compelled to, you know, that the, the, there are many people that feel compelled to open their hearts inside. Uh, and you challenged me, Brian, to 
take a patient approach to open your heart to like have hold space for people that want to like take steps on a journey. Even it seem, even if it seems they should be way farther along. <laughs> it really, it really does to me. It feels like so self-evident. You, to you me. once told me, you're like, Brian, you set the bar so low. <laughs> you know? And I don't know why I have this crazy calling to have so many, so much patience, you know, but I just feel like if somebody doesn't, you know, but I, I just have to believe, I just have to believe that it's not that hard to just love people and to get invited into a space where maybe you're going to find out that this is precisely what your theology can and should be about. So there it is, folks. Um, <laughs> that was... <laughs> whew. That was one of my best friends. And I didn't know half of the details of what he just shared. And he just chose to be really honest with us about the, the impact of church in his life and all that you just heard. So I just really hope that, um, that you're brave enough to open up your heart to what just happened and to all of those stories um, Matt's amazing story and support, uh, Jana's beautiful, simple heart and patience for her family and Caleb's tough story to hear. Um, that still got some, uh, uh, a fair amount of hurt. Uh, but he bravely steps into doing this project with me because he believes that we can make things right. So thank you for listening today. I hope that these stories uh, helped you open your heart because knowing these stories is the first step. And this is Brian signing off. See you next time. Brian Nitzel is an author, speaker, and thought leader. To learn more, visit briannitzel.com or follow him on Instagram at briannitzel.